You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Thank you all so much for coming this evening. A couple weeks ago, I was officially ordained, and I want to say thank you to our church family once again. Um, We've been here for nine years now, nine and a half years, and throughout that time, our family has felt loved the whole way through. And this is just another opportunity where you showed your love to me and to our family with congratulations and gifts and cards and all those things. And so I'm, I'm so grateful for the church family that God has put me in. I'm so thankful for the things that I've been able to learn here and the mistakes I've been able to make and that you've been kind and gracious through those mistakes. You've put up with me. And so thank you for that. Um, yesterday, I had the opportunity to perform my first wedding ceremony. And so that was a terrifying experience. But throughout the day, the thing that I I think I realized for the first time more than any other time before that is that it is the hardest day for the parents. It's it's not the hardest day for the guy giving the ceremony, as much as I was nervous, as much as I had to go through that. It's not the hardest day for the couple because they're all excited about this new thing they're entering into. They're just about to go on their honeymoon trip. It's not scary for anybody else, but for the parents, it's terrifying. Because that child is going out from under you, under your care and under your guidance, and now they're they're all on their own and they have this new partner and you don't I mean they right, you love the new partner, but you just don't know. They're just they're just gone. They're they're leaving your house. I put my parents through that when I was (laughs) eighteen. And uh I'm sure it was difficult for them, but they knew that I was marrying Tara, so that was okay. Um, she's a good girl. Can't imagine what Tara's parents were feeling. <laughs> um, but I say that because we're coming to a time in the book of Galatians where we get into Paul's emotions. And here he's been, he's been instructing and correcting and giving doctrinal information and correction to this church. And he's been so businesslike, so intellectual so far in his, in his delivery. But as I mentioned before, Paul suffered for this church, and he loved this church, and so he wasn't just coming to, to correct a doctrinal problem because he, he thought it just needed to be corrected. He was coming because it was, a, it was a real problem, and he loved these people so much. I've said that many times as we've gone through the book of Galatians so far in the first 12 lessons, but here in this passage tonight, we see Paul calling these people, this church, these churches of Galatia, his children. And loving them like it's his children. And, and I was thinking that imagine if you were allowing your child to marry somebody and all of a sudden they were, they were going after somebody that was just not right for them. That you, that you knew was, was leading them astray. That was giving them false flattery. And here what Paul sees is he sees his children being swayed by these false teachers and, and running after them and, and leaving their bride, leaving their groom, leaving Christ and going after these false teachers. And this is just Paul. Finally, it's like he's given all of this doctrinal instruction, and he's not even done yet, because he continues after. He just, it's almost like a pause. I call this sermon Paul's heartfelt parenthesis, because it's almost like there's this parenthesis in the middle of chapter 4, where Paul says, this is how I feel. This is my emotional appeal to you. So that's what we get here in these verses. And so I'll just really quickly run through what's happened so far in the book of Galatians, and then we'll get into Galatians chapter 4, verse 12 in a moment. So thus far, 
We have the book of Galatians beginning with the very briefest introduction. Paul has no flattery, no talk of saints, no brothers, none of what you see in the rest of his epistles. He just gets straight to the point, straight to the gospel. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you to the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel preach any other gospel unto you, And that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I mean, he's right down to business. You're moving away from the gospel, and not only moving away from the gospel that I preach, but you're moving away from Christ. And this is a problem, because this gospel, it's the only gospel. There is no other gospel, and if anybody tells you that there is, and if anybody, myself included, comes to you with another gospel, let them be accursed, eternally damned. He's very serious here. He's getting right to the point. Galatians 2.4 continues. He says, Because of the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage. And so we hear now the false gospel. What it is, it's that they're trying to take the law and they're trying to add it to Jesus. They're trying to bring them back under the bondage of the law that they were saved out from. And so that's what Paul's all concerned about. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, he's dealing with Peter, who is another apostle, who, who is the loud-mouthed apostle of, of Christ. And Galatians 2.11 says, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. This is a serious thing. Even Peter I stood up to because there's one gospel, and when he's not living in accordance with the gospel, it needs to be corrected. So I corrected Peter. What was the problem? Well, Galatians 2.14 says, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel... And what we learn here is that Peter was, even though he might have preached the true gospel, he was living in a way that didn't exemplify it. And we learn that when we believe the true gospel, it should be evident in our lives. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul is still on the attack. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's tricked you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ have been evidently set forth, crucified among you. How can you be so foolish? And then he gives them a series of rhetorical questions, one of which is, once again, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And so Paul is just on the attack. And in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he gives a series of arguments to support his thesis that justification is by faith alone, apart from any works of the law. He says, verses 1 to 6, it's, it's, that, it's true because of your own experience. You were saved by the Spirit of God. You were not saved by the law. Verses 7 and 9 show that Abraham, his faith was counted unto him as righteousness. Verse 10 to 14, we look at Old Testament scripture that that the law just brings a curse. Verses 15 to 18, we find Christ is the fulfillment of the law and that he's the, the true heir of all the promises made to Abraham. Verses 19 to 29 reveal to us the true purpose of the law. That the entire design of the law was never to save us. That God's plan all along was that the law would reveal our sinfulness. That would reveal to us our need of a Savior so that we would see that we are condemned because of the law and we would run to the salvation that's offered in Christ. See, the law was a schoolmaster, a pedagogos, to, to lead us to Christ. Then in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 4, Paul lays out the beautiful nature of what adoption is. 
We have been adopted by our Heavenly Father. We have become children of God rather than slaves. And so why would a child ever act like a slave? So here we get to verse 11. It says, how could you know God or be known by God and then choose to leave that and go back under the law? And it's like he's overwhelmed with emotion. He's like, why are you guys doing this? And that leads us to verse 12. But do you, do you notice anything that's been maybe conspicuously absent from what Paul has said so far? There's been no kind words. I mean, we understand that, that truth and love can't be separated. And so as, as he gives them truth, he's showing them love. But so far, we, we don't see this kindness that is, it's almost foreign to Paul's writing. Even when he's dealing with the Corinthians, he's, he shows them love and then he corrects them. And he shows them love and corrects them. And so far, he's gone four and a half chapters and it's been, you know, this is the law. This is the law. This is, this is grace and you're messing it up with following the law. So Paul has been academic. He's shown us intellectually why the gospel is true and why they should follow it. He's shown us scripturally, theologically, all of its truth. Um, he's been all head. He's been very little heart up to this point. So far, Paul has been like a lawyer making his case, and he has made a great case. He's preferred truth to, f- to friendship, fact to fellowship, and principles to people. That all changes in verse 12. Finally, Paul allows the church of Galatia to see the deep emotions that drive his passionate defense of the gospel. So let's read. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brethren, look at already. It's like it's starting a new, new, new line, right? He went from fact and scripture and to brothers. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Now, when you look at that phrase, it might seem a little bit confusing. And it is a little bit confusing the way it's written. Uh, it's just a lot of very short words altogether. Be as I am, because I am as you are. Not even because. For I am as you are. But in the Greek, the word that is translated be is genomehi, and it means to cause to become. And so what he's saying is, become as I am, for I became as you are. That's what he's saying. And when we say it that way, it kind of makes a lot more sense. Brothers, I want you to become like me because I was willing to become like you. And it's amazing how the, the Spirit's been working. And, and I mean, if you were here last Sunday morning when Pastor preached his message, I wasn't here for that message. We don't plan our messages together or anything. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 19. Sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. This is what Pastor preached on last week. And when he says, become as I am, for I became as you are, well, what does he mean? He means, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. He comes to the region of Galatia, and he comes to a people who are primarily without law. And so he says, I became as you. I mean, I was under the law of Christ, sure, but 
I left my Jewish customs behind. I, I left all of those things so that I could become as you and I can bring you the gospel so that you would understand it. And now what I'm asking for you to do is understand that I, I went through that for you. I became like you. You need to become like me. Become free from the law. Don't put yourself back under the law that, because Paul has almost the same story as them, doesn't he? I mean, he was a guy who at one point was married to the law. The law was everything to Paul when he was a Pharisee. He was killing people because he thought they weren't keeping the law, which is against the law, but that's how his mind was working. He was just going around slaughtering Christians because they weren't keeping the law of Moses. And now Paul has been freed from that bondage, and he says, I came to you, and I was free from that, and now I want you to become like me. Be like that. Don't don't put yourself under the law again. The second part of that verse probably belongs with verse 13. He says, you have not injured me at all. What does he mean there? You've not injured me at all. Well, some people think he's just using a rhetorical phrase or being sarcastic where he's saying, you haven't hurt me at all, but really it's obvious that he's been very hurt. I don't think so. I think what he's about to do is he's about to explain his initial relationship with the churches of Galatia. He's saying, I haven't been injured. I haven't been hurt. You haven't wronged me. You've been good to me. Because verse 13 says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation or my adversity which was in my flesh, you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if I, it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and had, would have given them to me. See, Paul here is describing what that first relationship was like. And here he says, you didn't hurt me, you didn't injure me at all, the temptation or the adversity I suffered in the flesh, you didn't despise it. You didn't reject me. He's actually being incredibly graphic in the language he's using. The word um, reject is to spit, spit out. And what would happen is with some diseases that were disfiguring, very obvious, uh, people would walk by and if, if you saw somebody with that kind of disease, you would spit at them. And the idea was that that would, that would keep the demon that had caused that disease in that person away. And so he's being so graphic to say, I came to you and I had this infirmity of the flesh and it was repulsive. It was so disgusting that you could have spit at me and it would have made sense in our culture. I mean, you could have rejected me entirely because of how I looked. Now, what's amazing is that during this culture, and pastors explain this with the church of Corinth, that they really respected eloquent speakers. They really respected impressive men. And so your philosophy would be judged based on who you are, based on your external appearance. And so now Paul comes to them, and we don't know exactly what the problem he had is. We'll discuss that in a second. But Paul comes to them, and he's got some obvious external problem, and the people receive him. And not only do they receive him, they receive him as an angel or as a messenger of God, even as Christ. It's like Christ, it's like God came to them and spoke to them through Paul. They understood it. That's how they received him. It's an amazing thing, the way that that he was received. Completely unexpected in their culture. But they did. And Paul's telling them how impressive that is. Now, the question becomes, and many theologians have have speculated on this, what exactly did Paul have? What was his infirmity of the flesh? What was so repulsive they could have spit at him? And there's been three primary answers given. Um, One is that he might have had malaria. And he was, before he was in Galatia, he was in Pamphylia. And Pamphylia is very lowlands, very swampy area. There was a lot of malaria there. And so 
Some people speculate that maybe his plan was to go east toward Ephesus, but instead he had to go north up into Galatia where it would have been higher lands and much more healthy territory. And so maybe he got malaria. Maybe that's why Mark ended up leaving because he was like, Paul's gross and he's disgusting and I'm, he's sick. I don't want to be like him. So I'm going home. So he, he, Paul goes on with Barnabas and they go up to Galatia where it's healthier. And that's how Paul shows up in Galatia, just sick with malaria. Some people think it would have been epileptic seizures because many times people with epilepsy were thought of as having some type of demon or something. And so they would they'd spit at those people when they're having a seizure. And the, the final answer that's given that I think makes probably the most sense is they thought that Paul had just some type of really strange eye illness. Something that you could visibly see but affected his eyesight. Part of the reason for that is because in verse 15 he says, where is the blessedness you spake of? Where is this amazing kindness you showed me before? For I bear you record that if it was possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. Now he might be speaking hyper in hyperbole saying, you know, you would have given the most precious thing to me, even your eyesight, but it's possible he was referring to their actual eyes. If they could have taken their eyes out and given them to Paul, they would have, because his eyes were so disfigured and, and non-functional. Uh, this is supported by Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. The word is how large letters I've written unto you. And so maybe Paul sat down to write this letter and he you know, he, he wasn't using a scribe like he usually did. And so he sits down with a pen and a paper, and he's got just huge writing because he can't see very well. Yeah, those are all just speculation, all ideas. But whatever it was, Paul had something that was really disgusting. Something that, that you'd look at him and you'd know right away that there's something sick about him. And he says, you guys were so kind to me. You accepted me as Christ. I, I mean, already for me, when I hear this and when I think about how I judge people, how I judge speakers, if somebody came to me and they, they had some type of disfigurement, something that, that, I mean, would you look the same way? If somebody walked on this pulpit and they weren't Pastor Dressler, you know, they weren't, they weren't the, <laughs> what did, um, Stan, Stan, how have you referred to Pastor Dressler before, his, his physical stature? He had the body of a, no? <laughs> Greek something. I don't know. Okay, right, something. Yeah, so it was a joke. He wasn't right. He wasn't being serious, but <laughs> yeah, pastor's huge head ever since then. Um, <laughs> but you, you realize that Paul most likely was a below-average guy in a lot of areas. He was maybe shorter, not not great looking, something disfiguring about him. He wasn't, I mean, he even said he didn't come to them with incredible speech. He came to him and, and people were calling him a fool because of what he was saying and because of how he said it. He wasn't eloquent. Paul is not an incredibly impressive guy. Yes, yes, he's brilliant. Yes, he knows the Old Testament. Yes, theologically, he's, he's wonderful. But when he first steps up and you see him, there's nothing beautiful about him. And yet, they understood that what was important was that he was bringing them the word of God. He was bringing them the gospel of God. And so they accepted it. And they loved him. And they, their love for them meant that they took care of him. So verse 16, he asks a kind of a hard question. 
says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? (laughs) That was our past. And it was so wonderful. And you accepted me even though you maybe shouldn't have according to cultural standards. Yet you did. And now I'm trying to tell you the truth once again. And yet you're calling me your enemy. Because you don't like what I'm saying even though it's the truth of God's word. I am your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. That's a hard thing to hear. And what's amazing to me is that if I was judging this situation just by my own perspective, I would say, yeah, the first time they probably shouldn't have listened to him. And the second time they probably should have. The first time his message is, you're a sinner, you need to repent of your sin, you need to turn to Christ. Even though following Christ will mean suffering and and carrying a cross and denying yourself, even though it's not going to be easy, you need to follow Christ. That's his first message. And they say, we believe you're from God, and so we're going to follow Christ. Accept the gospel. The second time he comes... He's coming and he's saying, you're trying to obey all these laws and all these external rules to be saved and you think that all of these things that you're doing are making you more spiritual and they're not. The gospel is by grace alone, by faith alone and all of these things are actually detracting from the true gospel and so you don't need to be acting so, so self-righteous, so religiously. You'd think they'd say, okay, that means I don't actually have to observe all the festivals and all these kind of things. It doesn't mean I, I don't have to get circumcised. That's a good deal. That's a truth that you should have accepted, and yet that's the one that they're rejecting. And it's, it shows us, I think, how self-righteous we can become so quickly. Somebody tells you you have freedom, and you're angry about it, and then they become your enemy, even though it's the truth. That's how they reacted to Paul. Verse 17, he turns his attention to the false teachers. He says, They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. What he's saying there is, they zealously affect you. They're going after you. And and the idea of affect is almost they they care about you, but not well, not for a good reason, not for a good thing. What they're trying to do is they're trying to exclude you. Now, we don't know for sure whether he's going to exclude you from from the gospel, from salvation by grace, or whether they're trying to exclude you from listening to Paul anymore. But whatever the case is, they're trying to take these people who are believing one thing and going a certain direction and following a certain you know, set of teachers and, and, and truths, and they're trying to exclude them from those truths and to turn them so that they will be zealously affected by them. In other words, their emotions and their, their love is going to be turned to these teachers rather than to these truths. So yes, they go after you, and yes, they say they care for you, and yes, you feel good when you listen to them, but their goal is not that you'll follow Christ and love Christ. Their goal is that you'll follow them and love them. We see this all the time, don't we? False teachers who, who they say things that people like to hear. We always think, and the first thing that comes to my mind when, when it's like a false teachers is maybe the prosperity gospel. So they say, like, God wants you to be healthy. And you're like, yeah, God wants me to be healthy. And God wants me to be wise. And okay, God wants me to know everything. And he wants me to just have everything that I've ever wanted. He just wants me to be happy. That's what God wants for me. And that message, we like it, right? We want to follow it. And so we end up saying, oh, yeah, that teacher's so great. I love that teacher. What they're teaching me is so great about God. But you can't say that, that's, that you love Jesus more because he never taught that. And so you're your affections are turned toward that teacher. But do you know what's funny? That in this case, the false teaching is a self-righteous teaching. These people are actually putting more rules on the lives of these people, and, and it's still turning these people's attention toward them. 
They're saying, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be better than everybody else, if you want to be able to look down at it on, on everybody else, you just need to do A, B, C, and D. You need to keep the law of Moses, and that'll do it. And then your relationship is right. It's amazing how much we want that. We want some type of standard that will tell us that we're better than our neighbor. We want something that's gonna, that we can check off so we can take part in our salvation. And what, what Paul is saying here is that these people, they're drawing your attention away from Christ and they're, they're drawing your affections and your zeal toward them. Yes, it looks like they care. Yes, it looks like they're passionate. But their passion, they're, they're not drawing you toward Christ, toward the gospel. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I am present with you. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you to be less passionate. I don't want you to be less zealous about your Christian life. Obviously, these people have taken big steps to to enter into this false gospel. They've taken big steps where they've changed their lives and changed how they live and become more Jews even though they're Gentiles. So he's like, I don't want you to be less passionate. I don't want this to become less a part of your life. It's not like I'm trying to make it easy on you. You should be zealous, but be zealous for truth. Be zealous for a good thing. And not only be zealous for a good thing, do it when I'm gone. One of the greatest fears I have with our youth group is that they will learn how to act at church. And they'll never know Christ. And they'll never really understand what Christianity is all about. And Christianity becomes about the show that they put on at church. And they get really good at it. Right? And I'm scared about that. That's something I worry about. Because I don't want that to ever happen. What Paul is saying here is that the measure of your Christian life, it's, you, know, you should be zealous, you should be passionate. But it should be happening when the pastor's not there. When Paul's not there. When people aren't looking at you. It's not just teenagers that do that. It's not just our youth. We all become good at Christianity, at the whole external Christianity. We've got to be so careful. Our Christian lives, we have to be zealous about Christ. And that zeal for Christ should not just affect how we behave at church and how we worship. It should affect every day of our lives, every decision we make, everything we do. Verse 19 my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. And this is one of the most incredible words of affection that Paul gives in any of his writings. My little children, I'm travailing in birth again. It's the picture of this mother who is going through birth pains once again. And he's willing to do it. He says, I try travail in birth again. I, I mean, can you imagine as a mother having to give birth to the same kid twice? You'd hate that kid. <laughs> you would, <laughs> right? <laughs> My mom wouldn't hold me for a day after I was born. <laughs> She's got her, some other reasons. They, they did a C-section and only, only froze half, right? So, so it, was, it, was, it was extra painful. I get that. But imagine having to give birth to me twice, <laughs> And that's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying, my children, I, I'm, I feel like you're, you have to be born again, again. It's just we're going through, and I'm going through all this pain that I first went through again. And I'm willing to do it until Christ be formed in you. And that is the goal of all preaching, of all ministry, of everything that we do at this church. 
We want Christ to be formed in you. He desires to be present with them. He wants to be there. He wants to change his voice. He doesn't want to have this harsh tone. He doesn't want to be angry. He doesn't want to be yelling at them. But he's scared. He's worried. He's in fear for them. So Paul here, we see this this incredible parenthetical paragraph where Paul is showing, he's pouring out his love and his heart for these people. And I think there's a lot of things as we read this paragraph that we learn from it. So what I want to do is I want to, to speak about, because what I see here is a lot of this relationship that Paul has with, his, with the people that he ministered to and then the relationship that they had back with him. So I want to give you a couple points that maybe highlight the relationship that exists between the minister of the gospel and the people of God. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to draw a distinction between one thing. So we're going to be speaking primarily about you know, pastors, that, the relationship of pastor and, and people. But here we have the relationship of apostle and people. And so there is a difference. Okay? The apostle here is directly from God and gives the truth from God to the people. And, and so he is not only drawing on Scripture as his authority, he's also drawing on his position as an apostle. We do not believe in apostolic succession. We believe that everything that the apostles had to tell us has been written down for us and that we have all the truth we need in the word of God. And so the the pastor's authority is as far as he's preaching the word of God. And after that, no authority, okay? But we do believe that a pastor can stand in the pulpit and preach with authority because we have the word of God. And so... Here, what, what difference we have is that our authority is based on what's been revealed here, not on new revelation. And you should be able to judge that yourselves. The problem with Galatia is that the people were not respecting Paul's rightful authority, and the people were obeying an illegitimate authority of false teachers who were pretending to have the authority of God. And so, with that in mind, let's talk about the responsibility of the people to the ministers of the gospel. Okay, so this is your responsibility as children of God involved in this church to minister the gospel. The first one is to appreciate spiritual and not physical attributes. To appreciate spiritual and not physical attributes. See, they knew that what Paul was giving them was from God. And so because of that, they respected him. And they, they obeyed him. They listened to him. It wasn't, it wasn't because he was beautiful. It wasn't because he was such a great speaker. It wasn't, in fact, he was physically deformed at the time and maybe permanently. And so they respected the fact that he was a faithful minister of the gospel. He says, you despise me not, you did not reject me because of how I looked. And as much as we might think, yeah, that's, that's you know, their culture, that's how they determined how things worked, I think we battle with the same thing sometimes. We become really impressed by people who are amazing, eloquent speakers, who are incredibly gifted, and we don't think much about their faithfulness to Scripture, their faithfulness in their personal lives, their love for Christ. And, and if you have a, a pastor who is not gifted like Pastor Dressler, but he's faithful to the gospel, then love him. Then follow his leadership as he follows Christ. To appreciate spiritual and not physical attributes. Second thing is to personally sacrifice for physical needs. Here we have their love for Paul 
being demonstrated by their willingness to, if possible, even pluck out their eyes. It's the blessed kindness you gave me. And, and what I'm saying is, there should be an appreciation here for a faithful minister and that should involve some type of suffering, some type of sacrifice. The third thing is this, to appreciate and respond to truth when it's preached. You should love truth. And when it's preached, you should respond. He was received as an angel or as a messenger of God, even as Christ. And their responsibility was to take the message that he had given them and to zealously live it out as truth. They understand it's truth from God, and so they zealously live it out even when he's not there. And so we must, as people, respond to truth and obey it. The final thing is to become more and more like Christ. It doesn't just happen magically. It doesn't just happen because you sit here. You can, you can come to church and hear the greatest sermons in the world. And if you don't apply those truths to your heart, and if you don't ask the Spirit to help you change, this is all for naught. It is a waste of time. And so you need to purpose in your heart to want to become more and more like Christ. You need to see his beauty and then try and reflect that beauty in your lives. It doesn't happen magically. It's, it's so silly to just think we just sit back and, and we're not active participants in our sanctification process. We are. We're active. God says obey, so obey. God says do this, so do this. God says to love your neighbor, so love your neighbor. Do the things you're told to do. Respond to it and you will become more and more like Christ. That's your responsibility. And so if you're sitting in the pew today, understand you have responsibilities as you come to the church. It's not just show up. And so when we see their relationship and we see what Paul commends in them, we see how I believe that, that people should respond to ministers of the gospel when they're speaking truth. Now, very quickly, the responsibility of ministers to their people. Number one, and this is, this is good because you understand that I am just, and pastor is just as much under the authority of the word of God as you are. And so I, I'm preaching to myself, I absolutely understand that. It's good for you to hear it. Number one, to personally sacrifice for their people. See, Paul comes, and he shows up here, and he could have left with Mark. He could have gone back, but he didn't. He continued the progression of the gospel, even though he was sick, even though he was having so much trouble, even though he had reasons to turn back, and even though in every city, Antioch, Derby. Lystra, Iconium, all of the cities of Galatia that he went, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was expelled out of their cities. I mean, he had a very rough time when he went to the region of Galatia, but he was willing to sacrifice for those people. That's what the minister of the gospel should do. Number two, they should guard against false doctrine even when it is difficult. There are times where it is honestly, it is fun to preach against false doctrine. There's a time, it's a joy. And you know when usually that is? When you know the people in the crowd agree with you. And they're like, yes, amen, that's wrong. Yeah, the prosperity gospel, poo-wee, right? I don't know what poo-wee is. <laughs> it's so bad. But, but this is it. What about when you have to sit across from somebody and you, want to, you have to tell them something that you know they're not going to like to hear? And you know they're probably not going to respond the right way. They're not going to respond the way you want them to. You know it's going to hurt them. 
ministers of the gospel have the responsibility to guard against false doctrine even when it's difficult. Paul says, I wish I could change my voice. I wish I could change my tone. You know what that's telling me? He didn't want to write the letter like that. He wanted to write a nice, mushy-gushy letter that would, you know, maybe help him to get back into their hearts and help them to like him a little bit more. But that's not wasn't his concern. His concern was truth. His concern was that they were going to follow Christ, not him. And so he was willing to say the things that were hard to say. Number three, to have true compassion and concern for their people. I can't imagine a more compassionate and, and a more heart-revealing statement than my little children I travail unto birth again. I love you like a mother. I love you like a father. These are the pictures that we have of Paul's love for his people. It's the responsibility of a minister of the gospel. It's not just knowing theology. Uh, I read something this week, and it was, theology is only good as it is pastoral theology, where it's practical. And, and so if theology is just something in your head and you're, you're a minister and you know lots of things and there's no love for your people and there's no compassion, you're wasting your time. And this is, this is something that's really good for me here because I, I have to force myself to love people. If I'm really honest, I mean, it's not, something, it's not the first thing that comes natural to me. Um, but Paul here is a wonderful example of a guy who was a brilliant man, brilliant theologian, and he was loving people, and he was sacrificing for them. He had genuine concern for them and for their lives. And that's why he wrote the letter he did. Martin Luther said, Paul teaches by his example that pastors and bishops should take a fatherly and a motherly attitude, not toward the ravenous wolves, which you kill them, but toward the miserable, misled, and erring sheep, patiently bearing their weaknesses and fall and handling them with the utmost gentleness. That's Paul here. Have compassion and concern for people. And finally, the goal of every minister of the gospel is to see the image of Christ formed in their people. And so if it's your goal, if it's your job, it's your responsibility to allow the image of Christ to be formed in you, it's our goal to preach the scriptures in a way that allows that to happen. If, if I'm pointing toward Christ and you're allowing Christ to work in your heart, then the response is you become more and more like Christ. It's, it's automatic. And that's what's supposed to happen. And so that is a responsibility, never to draw attention to themselves and always to draw attention to Christ by preaching truth of the gospel in a loving way. Christ will be formed in you and in me. That, that's what the Bible does. That's what the Holy Spirit inside of you is designed to do. So it's our jobs to preach it in that way. I wonder sometimes what we expect when we come to church. I wonder if sometimes we realize that we do have responsibilities. That it's not just a show. It's not a theater play that you've paid for. That we have responsibilities to seek growth in ourselves, to foster growth in other people, to listen, to love, to care for, to serve. This is the message of the gospel. It's not that you got saved and now you're all set. It's you got saved, now you're a child of God, a part of the family of God, and then we grow together. That's what we do at church. This letter is so incredibly relevant to us. Why? Because the goal of Paul in this church and the goal of those people should have been to see Christ formed in them. 
the goal of Maple City Baptist Church is to see Christ formed in you. Let's pray.